0: You're listening to The 7th, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. of you this morning. This is, this is the week, right? There's always that week where everyone goes to the beach, and we should have just packed up a bus and gone to them, and we could all be in the sand right now taking communion, and it'd be amazing. But we're here, and that's awesome. And so we're going to open up the Bible together, and we're going to um, make much of Jesus this morning. Uh, my name's Jamie. one of the pastors here. If you are new, glad that you're here with us. Um, as we dive into uh, what began as a new sermon series about two weeks ago entitled The Seven, we're taking a look at seven letters throughout the course of Revelation chapters two and three that were written to seven specific uh, first century churches in Asia Minor, but they have much uh, within those letters for us to glean as a church. And uh, this morning is is an interesting one because we're looking at essentially what was one of the most persecuted churches in uh the first century, the, the early age of the New Testament church. And, and yet we live in the land of golf carts and golf cart paths. And so we have that oddity where, where we're trying to press into the topic of persecution and what does that look like for us? And so we know that uh, ultimately uh, daily we don't face the possibility of imprisonment or martyrdom. and yet there's this sobering reality that right up the street in Charleston horrific things happened. This week for people who are gathering together to pray and, and make much of, of Jesus. And so there, there is a possibility that at any given moment we could experience great persecution, even unto death. But the likelihood of that um, is very low uh, on, on the scale. And, and yet my hope this morning is to communicate that we do, if you're if you're a Christian, you do experience persecution. That, that that's uh, not something that we just dismiss because the level that we experience is not to the level... Of other Christians in, in other parts of the world, and so uh, I, I want to take you on a, a tour of this church's history and what unfolded for them, and then try to connect the dots to us and unpack how it is that you and I experience persecution and why we should take that seriously, even in light of the fact that it doesn't seem to to communicate to the same level of even what we're reading this morning. And so, uh, a couple of things this morning. One, I would commend this book to you. Um, This would be one worth going on Amazon even as we continue to plow through the course of this series. It's entitled To the One Who Conquers uh, by Sam Storms, and it includes uh, little two-page meditations, devotionals, whatever kind of language you want to use, having to do with these particular letters. And so there are roughly seven or eight different daily devotionals for each of these letters, so you can kind of tackle it one per day and very short, you know, you can read them in a matter of two or three minutes, but fantastic stuff. This is where I get some of the content even for Sunday mornings and would just commend this book to you. It's fantastic. Um, and then as we dive in this morning, I want to come back to the prayer that I brought before us in the first week of this series as we were unpacking the the introduction itself, that that Jesus is going to commend each of these churches Um for things that he sees that they're doing well as they persevere for the sake of the gospel. And he's gonna rebuke many of them. Interestingly, there are two that he doesn't rebuke, and and one of those is the church in Smyrna, the one that we're gonna look at this morning. But uh, my hope is that this prayer would be before us as we plow through the rest of the series that we would be a people who would be uh, willing and ready to say to Jesus, Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable. Rebuke me in that which is dishonorable. And above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are that that's that's my prayer for us as we continue to work through this series week by week and so with that being said if you have a bible you can go ahead and open up to revelation chapter 2 we'll be in verses 8 through 11 this morning if you don't have a bible there should be a bible nearby in the row in front of you underneath in one of the baskets um, you can grab one of those bibles and flip open to the very back of that bible last book of the bible the book of Revelation. And find chapter 2 there. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours for free. We want you to take that so that you can be exploring the truth claims of Christianity with us as a church in your spare time. And so let me just read this morning's passage, and we'll pray and we'll jump in. It says this, beginning in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you. This is such a strange topic to talk about the persecuted church when, for many of us, uh, we would find it very difficult to even define persecution in our very lives. And yet, we're told that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so there are some dots to be connected this morning. I pray that you would uh, sober us and... um, Help us to experience uh, at a heart level deep gratitude for the fact that uh, we are not persecuted to the degree that the church in Smyrna was. Uh, But I pray also that you would help us not to just dismiss the idea of persecution altogether, but would help us to see how that applies to our lives um, as we seek to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. So would you connect the dots for us this morning Um, I can't possibly do that without you. I need you. We all need you. So, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. We ask these things in the name of Jesus to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things. Um, The church in Smyrna. Last week we looked at the church in Ephesus, and there is great detail in terms of the The birth and the life and the death of the church in Ephesus. And so uh, we spent a great deal of time kind of unpacking that church from start to finish ultimately. There's not quite as much information, at least according to the scriptures, on the church in Smyrna. In fact, all you really have in the Bible is this morning's passage. And then going back to Revelation chapter 1 in the listing of these seven churches, verse 11, it includes the church in Smyrna. But we do know some things historically. We know that Smyrna was located roughly 35 miles north of Ephesus. Um, Strangely, Smyrna, Georgia is roughly 35 miles north of us. So if that helps you to get your mind around even like distance, that's really weird. But we are not talking about Smyrna, Georgia this morning. We're talking about a church over in Asia Minor. Roughly a population of over 100,000 which is roughly the population of Fayette County, if you can get your mind around that, both the city and the the surrounding county areas. It was a harbor town like Ephesus. It sat on a bay, and so there was much trade and commerce that took place similar to Ephesus. Um, In fact, uh, there was a great rivalry between Smyrna and Ephesus over who was the better city Um, The people of Smyrna named their city the ornament of Asia, the pride of Asia. Very arrogant, right, that you would name your city the the ornament of an entire continent. Um, These people were were very proud people. They were very proud of their city. They loved their city, and and that's to be commended. We should all be people who love our city, who care for our city, um, who would talk about our city and see um, some of the intricacies of the beauty of, of our city. Ephesus, uh, or Smyrna, I should say, was, was viewed as a model of what city planning should look like. And so you can imagine in the first century, this was not uh, what would comprise most cities. They had a uh, strategically paved roads that ran throughout the entire city. They had a gymnasium. They had a stadium, they had a a public library, and they had a theater that could seat roughly 20,000 people rivaling the theater in Ephesus that we talked about last week. That, um, In terms of city planning, everyone was looking at this city going, this is how we should do it moving forward. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Peachtree City, the land of cart paths and villages. Everyone should do it this way. Like they finally got it right. Everyone should model their cities after our planned community because we've done it well, and so everyone should follow suit in terms of of how we've done it. Most people believe that Homer was the, was from there, and not uh, the dad on the Simpsons. The guy who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, the poet and the author, um, was from the city of Smyrna, it was known for uh, its allegiance to Rome. And so two, 200 years before Jesus was born, uh, a temple that personified Rome as a, as a Greek goddess was was built and dedicated to Smyrna. Um, around the time of Jesus' public ministry, Smyrna beat out 10 other cities in a competition to see who would uh, be able to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and Smyrna won. So it would be like if... Uh, if we were competing to have the Olympics brought to our city, which historically we have had that happen, right? But on the basis of our deep devoted worship to Zeus... In, in whom the Olympic Games were created to honor. It would be as though we were to say, we worship you more than any other city, and so you should bring uh, your temple here. That was the, the city of Smyrna. They, they worshipped Rome and her emperor so much so that they beat out 10 other major metropolitan cities to have a, a temple to, to the emperor Tiberius brought into the city. Their coins had images of temples to Rome, to to Tiberius, to Hadrian, to Nero, to all of these guys that you hear about who persecuted the early church. They had statues of Domitian and Trajan and Hadrian amongst other emperors built in the city. So everywhere you looked, you saw traces of Rome and the Roman Empire. Roughly 80 years after this letter that we're reading this morning was written, an earthquake hit Smyrna that destroyed Most of the city, and this is crazy, a letter was then written to the emperor of the time, a guy by the name of Marcus Aurelius, who read the letter describing the damage and the devastation and actually wept real tears and determined that he was going to send funds to the city to have it rebuilt because he loved it so much. And not only that, but to set aside taxes for an entire decade so that they could get back on their feet. That was the kind of relationship between Smyrna and the Roman Empire. They were deeply devoted to Rome. They bent their knee to Rome and her emperor. And along with that political allegiance, there was a religious allegiance to the various Greek gods that existed At the time, so there was a temple built to Zeus that sat um, on the Gulf of the Aegean Sea and overlooked the sea. There were also temples to Apollo and Aphrodite, among amongst others. Imagine the church, if if you could, for just a moment, meeting in their modest homes in the midst of persecution and looking out the windows and seeing these great temples. And statues. Every time they would go to spend money in the market, looking at the coinage and seeing this allegiance politically to Rome and, and the allegiance religiously to every other God that was believed to exist outside of the, the God of the Bible. That's the world in which these people lived. And somehow in that city was an expression of the local church. We don't We don't really know much about the planting of the gospel in Smyrna. If you go back to last week, we know that um, as a result of Paul planting the gospel in Ephesus, that the word of the Lord went forth through all of Asia to Jews and Greeks alike. And so I think we can assume that the gospel was planted as a result of what originally happened in in Ephesus, which would have uh, bled into areas like Smyrna. We do know that there was a faithful group of Christians that made up the church in Smyrna because it's one of two letters in which there's no rebuke included by Jesus. What's crazy is if you go back to last week, if you think about the church in Ephesus, the gospel blew up in Ephesus, and yet this very day there is no expression of Christianity in that area. Meanwhile, Christians were being persecuted. We're being martyred. We're being wiped out in Smyrna. And, and to this day, if you go to that area where Smyrna uh, existed, it's, it's under a different name in modern-day Turkey now, but if you go to that area, half of that population is Christian. And, and it's actually a hub for Christianity in that area of the, the world. There's something to be learned from this church, even for us. If you move forward to verses uh, 9 and 10, You see that the church in Smyrna was absolutely a persecuted church. It says this. It says, I know your tribulation, this is Jesus talking, and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So what you have is you have Jewish opposition, right? We see that clearly. In the text, but we've also got this language of imprisonment, culminating in the death penalty, which assumes uh, Roman political opposition as well. the The Romans, if you think about it for a second, in light of everything that I just shared and unpacking a little bit of the background of this city, in a city known for its allegiance to Rome, in a city that housed a, a temple that personified Rome as a goddess, in a city that housed a temple to the Roman Emperor Tiberius in a city that housed statues of Roman emperors Domitian and Trajan and Hadrian, in a city in which the very monetary currency had images of temples to Rome, to Tiberius, to Nero, amongst others, you can imagine that for someone not to pay homage to Rome and her emperor would cost you, right? That it was, it was not going to go well for you if you were a person in that city that refused to bend your knee to Caesar. The problem is this. As Christians, we know this to be true that Caesar and Jesus can't both be Lord, right? There's only one throne. There's only one crown. And even the Romans knew that. They didn't want Jesus competing with Caesar for the throne either, And so word was getting out that Christians were not willing to bend their knee to Caesar as Lord. And it was resulting, according to verse 9, in poverty and slander. Poverty likely due, you can imagine, to, one, an unwillingness to set aside ethics and business. As a Christian, you're now going, it's not just about the bottom line for me, but rather now I'm thinking, how do I leverage my business for the glory of God? How do I bend my knee ultimately to King Jesus, not the bottom line? And that's going to cost you. Poverty also likely due to the fact that non-Christians wouldn't employ Christians or trade with them. So you can imagine trying to barter goods, trying to take things that you bring to the table and trade with others, and they're going, nope, you worship Jesus as Lord, not Caesar, so I'm not going to trade with you. I know you need milk at the end of the day, and I've got it. You're not getting it this week. And so all of a sudden, various goods that you need just to get through the week, you don't have access to anymore as a Christian because of the hostility toward you. And it's even possible, and the author of Hebrews alludes to this at one point, that many of the Christians' homes were being pillaged by those who didn't love Jesus as well. That, that they were coming in and destroying the very property of Christians in the city because of the great allegiance to Rome and the unwillingness of Christians to bend their knee to Caesar as the Lord. And along with poverty, you have the language of slander as well in, in verse 9. That uh, the slander was coming from the Jewish population, uh, we, we know, according to verses uh, 9 and 10, that the, the very word slander here is the Greek word blasphemia. It's where we get our word blasphemy, that Jews were calling uh, things that were truth a lie. They were communicating in a way uh, that was uh, kind of backdooring, backbiting uh, in, in certain situations, throwing Christians under the bus. Um, that that word can even mean abusive language, that Christians were being verbally abused in Smyrna. And this was nothing new. If you go back and you read the book of Acts, and you you should, and kind of follow the story of the early church, there's this theme that unfolds in the book of Acts uh, with respect to Jewish opposition to the gospel as it's going forth in the early church. In Acts 13, we're told that uh, as Paul and Barnabas went to Antioch, that the Jews got jealous of the crowds that were gathering in to hear the gospel, and so they, they went to the city leaders and had them drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. And so Paul and Barnabas moved on to Iconium. You read in, in Acts chapter 14 where unbelieving Jews poisoned the mind of the Gentiles, we're told, against Paul and Barnabas and ultimately attempted to stone them to death. Fast forward to the end of Acts 14 in Lystra. God was at work so powerfully, this is crazy, that people in the city actually thought that Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods, had become incarnate in Barnabas and Paul and began to worship them and offer sacrifices to them because of the power and work of the gospel and the healings that were taking place. Meanwhile, the Jews from those first two cities, Antioch and Iconium, were traveling now to follow Paul so that they could persuade crowds to kill him and his posse of gospel proclaimers. If you move on to Acts chapter 17 in Thessalonica, the Jews again became jealous of Paul and the work of the gospel. So they formed a mob and rioted in the streets. And they even went so far as to go to the home of a Christian that they thought was housing Paul and uh, attempted to uh, essentially uh, attack the house. So you have this idea of pillaging you move on in Acts 17 in Berea. Um, we're told that uh, the Jews from Thessalonica traveled again, got, went on a road trip to Berea following Paul, agitating and stirring up the crowds there. And then in Corinth, it was so bad that Paul actually said at one point to the Jews, your blood be on your heads. Like, you, you guys have been coming at me with such hostility for so long that I'm done. Like, I, I'm, I'm moving on to the Gentiles now. Your blood be on your own heads. If you move forward in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, back in Jerusalem, we're told that the Jews had Paul arrested in the temple. And they beat him and tried to kill him. And ultimately, the book of Acts ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome, still disputing with Jewish leaders. The, the, this goes on for half of the book of Acts. You don't even get Paul's conversion story in, until you get to chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And then practically from that point on, it's Jewish opposition to the gospel. And apparently it was going on roughly 50 years later when this letter to Smyrna was written. We're told that Jews were slandering Christians, refusing to trade with them, refusing to employ them. But not only that, they were ratting Christians out to the Roman authorities is essentially what was what was happening. You go, how did, how did they end up in prison and on the chopping block? Because the Jews were throwing them under the bus saying, hey, Caesar, these guys aren't bending their knee to you, so you need to do something about it. And one of the commentaries that... Uh, I read this week a guy by the name of James Drawbell, he's a famous 20th century uh, British journalist, said this about this particular war that was going on. He said, I admire conscientious objectors in this war as long as they are conscientious, and I admire soldiers. The only ones I never admire are the ones who fight with their mouths. And that was essentially what was taking place here, that the Jews were fighting with their mouths more than than anything. They were ratting out Christians. They were so hostile that Jesus in this very letter refers to them as non-Jews, as a synagogue of Satan that if you read Romans 2 Paul puts it this way he says this he says for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter that that Jesus is saying to these people you're Jewish ethically but you're not the people of God spiritually that externally you appear to be a follower of me but internally there's something that's quite hostile to the gospel that you're actually the people of Satan. You're in opposition to God. You're in opposition to the good news of the gospel. John Wesley was once in a conversation. This is amazing. This is bold. He was once in a conversation with someone who was completely perverting Christianity, and this was his response at one point in the conversation. He said to the man, your God is my devil. Can you imagine saying that to someone who's in hostile opposition to the gospel as you're proclaiming it? Your God is my devil. In essence, that's what Jesus is saying to the Jews in Smyrna, that the devil of hell is on the prowl in this city, and he's using the Jews to do his bidding. And, and it's, it's not going to end with the present forms of suffering, poverty, and slander. If you read on in verse 10, it says this. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Notice that, and this is fascinating to me, um, notice that Jesus doesn't say, you've endured poverty and slander, well done. Let me end that for you. Rather, Jesus says, you've endured poverty and slander, here's what's coming next. Be ready, be faithful, don't be afraid, persevere. That, that's not, if we're honest, a Jesus that many of us are willing to follow. We'll follow a Jesus who will take away our suffering when we prayerfully ask him to and even sometimes wave our fists at him and and show him all of our religious accolades of things that we've done in his name so that it's assumed that he now owes us. When the gospel says he owes us nothing but he gave us his son. We'll follow a Jesus who will take away our suffering when we prayerfully ask. A, A Jesus who doesn't remove our hurt and pain quickly, that's a Jesus to be abandoned in our culture by many Jesus says it's going to get worse before it gets better. They're going to call you traitors to Rome and imprison you, and they may even kill you. And the Jews are going to be the ones to throw you under the bus. Now, here's what we know historically. We know that Jesus didn't wipe out suffering in a blink, because if you fast forward about 50 years after this letter of the Bible uh, was written, this book of the Bible Was written One of the most famous stories of martyrdom in all of Christian history took place. It was a guy by the name of Polycarp. That's a really weird name, obviously, because no one is naming their kids that today. Uh, But he was a member of the church in Smyrna at the time this letter was written. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyons, who was born in the city of Smyrna, himself says that Polycarp knew the apostle John. That it's very likely that he held the original manuscript of this letter that we're reading this morning for himself, which is just crazy. He himself read of the danger of imprisonment and martyrdom for those who were unwilling to renounce Jesus. And if you fast forward the story roughly 50 years later, as the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was arrested. He was commanded to renounce Jesus. And and this is what he said. It's amazing. His response was, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He would go on to die for the gospel, burned alive in the stadium in Smyrna. And this is mind-blowing. Even though it was the Sabbath, Jews in the city helped to gather the wood for the fire to burn him alive. The same Jews who wanted to slap Jesus on the wrist for plucking grain on the Sabbath with the boys, the same Jews that wanted to slap Jesus on the wrist for healing people, on the Sabbath, the same Jews that uh, came at Jesus and the disciples at one point for not washing their hands before they ate, because clearly that's one of the rules of living in Jewish society, the same Jews were willing to abandon everything that the Sabbath has to lay out for them in order to go and work on the Sabbath to gather sticks so that they could burn a man alive in the name of Jesus. That's unbelievable. As the story of martyrdom goes, as they uh, prepared to light the stake, he prayed the following prayer, he said this, O Lord Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. According to historical records, you would think like, okay, so you know, the heavens parted and his death was easy, Now, listen to this. According to historical records, the fire was lit, but the wind blew in such a direction that his suffering was prolonged. So that a soldier had to come up and actually kill him by way of the sword to put him out of his misery. That's the church in Smyrna. All right, what do we do with that? Like, what is the application? What about us? What in the world do you do do with a, a letter like this in light of the fact that we don't experience that kind of persecution? We, we're not um, tested to the point of imprisonment uh, or even death that at most for many of us we experience maybe a a slight sense of poverty because we sacrificially give to the mission of the church going forward, um, or because uh, for the sake of Christ we give up a more lucrative job opportunity in order to do something that we feel like God is calling us to do, and so we may experience that piece of it in some sense. Um, but but most certainly slander would be one that we could address, and so I want to want to kind of unpack what that what that looks like for us, what we're supposed to do with this language of suffering as the church here in Peachtree City and the surrounding area. On the one hand, you and I are not persecuted to that degree, but on the other hand, we are told in 2 Timothy 3.12 that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so if you're a Christian, your desire is what? To live a godly life in Christ Jesus, right? So the Bible tells us you will be persecuted. How in the world does that work? What does that look like for you and me? Jesus himself said it this way in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so as strange as it may sound, if you're a Christian, your name is on the list of the persecuted. That we we actually can and do experience as Christians uh, in the world in which we live persecution to some extent. So I want to talk about that for just a moment. And I think what would be helpful in unpacking that for us is to offer you this definition of persecution by John Stott. He says this. He says, Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. I'll say that again. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. I I think that definition is helpful because... um, Outside of Christianity, there is no other value system that's based on grace alone, right? If you think about it, um, amongst those who are religious in nature but choose to follow other gods or focus on other world religions, the the goal is to make your way to the top by way of your performance, to to be a person who's good enough that when you stand before God one day, he'll accept you in, he will love you. And and then on the flip side, you, you have even the irreligious Um, who are uh, arguing that they are the final determination of what truth is. And so when you come uh, with a worldview that says that your God is the truth, right? Jesus said that about himself, and he's the ultimate determining factor of what truth is. It comes in hostile opposition on both ends, from both the religious lost and the irreligious lost. If you think about it this way, as a Christian... If you choose to live a life of, of temperance and sobriety in a world in which um, overindulgence is, is accepted as a virtue, you're probably going to take it on the chin. If you're a person who embraces humility in a world that says, survival of the fittest, step on anyone and everyone you have to on your way to the top of the food chain, you're probably going to be ridiculed for living a life of Humility. When, when you bend your knee to God and say, I can't, you have to on my behalf, that comes across as weak to a world that says, with white-knuckled fists, do everything you can in your own power to earn it. Get while the getting's good. He who dies with the most toys wins. It's very countercultural to be a Christian, even, even in the world in which we live. You have two irreconcilable value systems that collide. Do you see that? Like before we go any further, do you do you encounter that at all in your life? Do you see um, as you're seeking to live for Jesus um, and, and making much of the gospel, both with your lips and with your life, do you do you see that collision happening anywhere in, in your life at, at any given uh, moment with people that you come into contact with, whether it be complete strangers or your friends, family members, neighbors, and co-workers, do you sense that hostility to any degree, that there are two irreconcilable value systems, worldviews that exist in this room right now? Um, can, can you see that? Is there an ability to to discern that? The church in Smyrna experienced great gospel persecution, Um it's probably helpful to say what I, what I don't mean when I talk about persecution because I, I think there are a couple of caveats here. Um, there are a couple of forms of persecution that you and I can experience that are not gospel persecution. And so when, when we talk about gospel persecution, we're not talking about experiencing great hostility for having a difficult personality. Right. There, there are some Christians who um, are just out to win the argument and not the person. And so it's just constant conflict that, that's happening relationally as you engage people in various conversations about any and everything in the world. And yet at the end of the day, it's not the gospel that's offensive. It, it's the person uh, carrying the conversation, ultimately, that um, that's not gospel persecution. That's argumentative. Uh, Self-righteous theologizing or evangelizing, and I use the term evangelizing very loosely there, um, that that our personality can create great hostility in people. But but I would say that's not ultimately gospel persecution. Nor is it gospel persecution if the message itself never actually includes the gospel. And so um, there's a medical term known as triage. Um, it's this idea uh, of the assignment of degrees of urgency to wounds and illnesses in order to determine the order of treatment of a large number of patients or casualties. So imagine old war movies and, and you know there's the tent and people are being brought in. and uh, the, you know the guy who's suffering from a fever is probably not going to get precedent over the guy who just got his arm blown off out on the front lines of battle. Same thing's true when you go to the ER, if you've ever been to the ER, that there's um, there are certain levels of priority based on what you've experienced, what your, your particular issue is, what the pain level is in that. And the reality is this, in the Christian life, there are some Christians who treat hangnails like heart attacks. Right? There are some Christians who consistently treat secondary matters as if they're, they're primary matters. And so I think we have to sit with the question this morning, um, are, are we always bringing up secondary things at the expense of the gospel? Um, some of these secondary issues are, are, you know, very important and worth engaging. But the question would be this. If you, do you find yourself getting into debates over the amount of water in baptism or translation of the Bible or the number of days that it took God to create the world in the beginning or political affiliation? Do you find yourself talking about those things often? but rarely talking about the gospel with other people. Because if that's the case and you're experiencing great hostility, it's not gospel persecution, it's secondary matter persecution at best. And so I think we have to assess ourselves and determine, am I coming uh, in love and humility in terms of the conversations I'm having with people um, out in the world, but also, is the gospel coming to bear at all in the conversations that I'm having in the first place? See, the, the Christians in Smyrna were being persecuted uh, not for standing up for the, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, they, they weren't being persecuted for standing up for a literal six-day creation story. They weren't being persecuted for, for standing up for the amount of water used in a person's baptism. Again, do those things matter? Sure, they're worth having a conversation over. But the Christians in Smyrna were being persecuted for standing up for the person and work of Jesus, ultimately. That if you make it your life's ambition to make much of Jesus with your lips and with your with your very life, you will be persecuted. Paul says, going back to 2 Timothy three twelve, probably not with weaponry, but most certainly with words. That people will talk about you, and it won't be pleasant. And for some of us, that's at a heart level that's worse than dying. Like I, I heard it, I've heard it said numerous times that um, <clears throat> the second greatest fear in the world is death. The first is public speaking to which I'm going, man, I'm in the worst line of work ever. Um, it sounds funny to say that something could be worse than death, right? But most of us in this room, if we're honest, have had that moment where something is unfolded in our lives and we've cried out, just take me now, Lord. Like you can just take me now and we can be done with this because at a heart level, what we're communicating is whatever that is that we're going through it is worse than death itself. That for some of us, At a heart level, having people insult us, talk badly about us, slander us, that sounds worse than dying. And that's because the approval idol runs deep in many of our hearts, myself included. That for the Christian, the Bible says sticks and stones may break your bones, but words just might hurt you too. That might be one way that we could say it. That they're a valid form of persecution. That's why Jesus includes slander on the list of troubles for this church in Smyrna. And that's probably the one that's going to affect us most as a church in our subculture. Probably, again, won't be extreme poverty, although we may be called to sacrificially um, give up of, of much of our possessions for the sake of the gospel. Probably won't be prison or death. Although, again, we have a case study this very week right up the street in Charleston of people dying as they gather to pray in the name of Jesus. Most likely for us, it will be the poison of the human tongue. So the question becomes, does any of this resonate with with you? Does any of this this language of us experience persecution in in our culture, does that that resonate with you at all? Again, the the value system that Jesus lays out in the scriptures is completely upside down to everyone who's not a follower of Jesus. It's upside down to the irreligious loss who think that uh, the reward is for the rich, for the strong, For those who hunger and thirst for power and control. Those who trample others underfoot on their way to the top. Those whose motto is, he who dies with the most toys wins. So build your kingdom. Christianity is upside down to that kind of value system and thinking. But it's also upside down to the religious lost who believe that God rewards the good guys and smites the bad guys. And so you want to reform yourself externally so that God will look upon you and see something good. Something worth loving. So it becomes a a system of rules built on top of rules, a hostility toward grace, toward Jesus and his cross. Can you pinpoint gospel persecution in your life? Tim Keller says, and I emphasize this is Keller because it, it comes across strong. He says, if you're always being persecuted, you're probably obnoxious. If you're never being persecuted, you're probably a coward. But most of the commentaries I read this week argued that the reason we don't experience persecution is because we've compromised. Either with our lips, the very message that we're proclaiming, that, that we build our lives on, the gospel itself, ha- has been compromised. Or the way we live our lives has been compromised in such a way as to say there's no consistency with, with our very message. Are you always being persecuted everywhere you go? Are you never being persecuted. Paul says those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience this to some extent. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, do not fear and be faithful. That the command for us is the same this morning. That that I, I have this question that I would pose that I've, I've sat with this week. How might God radically impact this city and the surrounding areas if we would just set aside fear And along with it, compromise and be faithful to boldly and humbly tell people about Jesus and to live as though we believe what we're telling them. What would that do in in the land of cultural Christianity and, and the great hostility of the D church that are jaded toward all of that that they've experienced along the way that's part of their story? What would that do for us to set aside compromise and fear and be faithful to boldly and yet humbly proclaim the gospel and live that? With our lives. Let me ask it this way Where do you see fear getting in the way of you making much of Jesus in your life? Where do you see temptation to be unfaithful to Jesus with your your lips and with your life? Where do you see those things? Because the commands are clear in this particular letter to, to not fear and to be faithful. I love. I love the way Jesus approaches us in these letters because he doesn't just unpack some generic uh, description of himself for each of these churches. He's very intentional. He, he's intending to meet his people in the midst of what they're dealing with so that if you read um, moving forward uh, in the text, actually we go back to verse 8, we get the description of Jesus. He says this, The words of the first and the last who died... And came to life. That that Jesus is saying to these people who are experiencing hostility to the gospel in all these various ways. He's saying, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I'm eternal king. That I existed long before the Roman Empire. Long before Caesar. That I existed long before the Jewish people. That, oh, by the way, I actually constituted them as a people back in their beginnings as a people. That Jesus existed long before those who slander you for making much of Jesus in the 21st century here in the southwest corridor of Atlanta. That Jesus is eternal. That he was around speaking creation into existence. Joseph Seiss says it this way in his commentary. He says, Jesus is older, mightier, and more enduring than the persons and powers which were oppressing the people of Smyrna. He whom they look to as their Savior is the same who saw the stars kindle and the sun's bud into being and who will live on in the same unwaning life and majesty should stars and suns expire and all material creations be changed like a worn-out garment. That's your Jesus. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, that's your Jesus. He's eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. His kingdom has reigned forever. Before time began, and it will reign forever. But he also describes himself as he who died and came to life. That that very phrase, came to life, um, I won't go into the nerdiness of Greek int- intricacies in the language, but that expresses one definite completed act in time, that Jesus is saying, I rose from the dead. He's driving at his resurrection, that according to William Barclay, he says it this way, the threat of death at any moment hung poised over every Christian in Smyrna, and it must have been an uplifting thing to remember that always with them, there was one who had conquered death, who had uh, and who, One who had taken on the last enemy and who had shattered his power. That uh, if Jesus is enough for people experiencing death, he's enough for people experiencing slander and ridicule in the culture in which we live. If he's conquered death, he can conquer all things. And we can look to him as our great conqueror in the midst of persecution, whatever level that, that comes our way with respect to Jesus says, that's who I am, and he goes on to say, as we close this morning, this is what I can afford you. He says this in verses 10 and 11, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, that Jesus promises a crown of life and a withholding of a second death. What does he mean there? The, the word crown in the Greek is the word stephanos. It, it can be translated as garland. So you get this idea of a runner running a, a race and, and emerging victoriously and being crowned with a crown of garland uh, for pressing on while being pressed. That's the idea here, that uh, even the word picture is a reminder of Jesus' crown of thorns. that, That he pressed on in the midst of being pressed, literally, he wore a crown so that we could too. Might be one way that we could say it. That the promise that Jesus can afford us a crown assumes that he is actually the king, not Caesar. Not Rome, not any of the gods that exist in our very day and age. Jesus is the king. He's the only one who can give the crown. And and what's crazy is, going back to last week, you remember uh, the story of Smyrna, and Jesus promises this tree of life, which is a slap in the face to the Greek goddess Artemis, uh, which was uh, in the city of Ephesus. Her temple sat in the city, and, and the tree was a symbol of that Greek goddess. Jesus says, in the midst of that culture, I can give you the tree of life. In the midst of Smyrna, there was a, uh, a Greek goddess named Sibyl who was pictured on coinage wearing a, a crown um, that was the very city itself, essentially, like a high rise of the city made up her crown. And Jesus says in the midst of that culture, he says, you can't offer the true crown. Only the king can do that, and you're not him. It's amazing how Jesus meets his people right where they are. If you take nothing away from from today or this entire series, know that Jesus can meet you and engage you right where they are, and his attributes are meant for every situation that you, you go through in life. But he doesn't just say, I can give you the crown of life. He says, I can take away the second death as well. That if you read the book of Revelation, you see three other times in this book that that refers to eternal punishment for the wicked. That Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian, you will not taste that ever. That there's nothing more fair in the world that you and I should taste that as sinners. That we we deserve to taste the second death that he's describing. But the gospel is gloriously unfair. The gospel says that you and I receive the crown of life which we don't deserve and we're spared of the second death, eternal death in hell, which we do deserve because of our sin, because Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die, bearing our sin and bearing our punishment in our place, that he died for us so that we could live for him no matter what the cost, no matter what comes our way. So the question as we close this morning is this, will you make it your life's ambition to make much of the king who died to give you life no matter what the cost? In a moment we'll take communion we take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup the bread representing the broken body of uh, jesus the cup representing his shed blood we do that um, as a collective proclamation of who he is and what he's done for us as a remembering of his his uh his death in our place and so if you're a christian that meal is for you we invite you to come momentarily um but in the meantime sit with this this morning and, and seriously ask the question, like, do, do I even know what to do with persecution? Am I willing to acknowledge that, yes, I'm not the church in Smyrna. Uh, I'm not being persecuted with the possibility of losing my very physical life for the sake of the gospel. But, but will you also walk in the tension of, of acknowledging that Paul... Absolutely says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And to ask yourself the question, where is that happening in my life? And if it's not, why? Where's the compromise? Is it with the message I'm proclaiming? Is it with the life I'm living that that fails to communicate uh, something consistent with what I profess to believe? What is it that's driving me to experience such comfort and ease, um, such non-persecution, when the Bible clearly says that no matter who you are, if Jesus is your king, To some extent, you're going to experience what, again, John Stock calls a clash of two irreconcilable value systems. Where do you see that? How can you engage that for the glory of God? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.